There is certainly no shortage of tragedy in the world, even in the news, and we just prayed for just a taste of what's happening in our world. And each year we see all kinds of things, tragedy at the hands of others, tragedy out of anyone's control, things like earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, fires, shootings, bombings. That's the short list. These things are hard enough to process and so often leave wakes of devastation involving entire communities. Uh, But unfortunately, every so often when these things occur, someone, often a preacher, will take the opportunity to rub salt in the wound and start speculating And make the statement that such an event occurred because of the sin of that community. Or because of the sin of the victims involved. Our passage today is a lectionary gospel passage for this morning. And in our passage, Jesus gets an interesting report about a tragedy. Likely a massacre. But Jesus has a very different take on this scenario, and tragedies in general than the preachers I just mentioned. Interestingly, Jesus brings up another tragedy and uses both of these episodes to instruct those who are listening to them as to what they should be doing while they still live. And he then illustrates his teaching with a parable. This is a very appropriate passage for Lent. People often use Lent, our current church season, to introspect and to recognize their mortality before God, their sin before God. In preparation for recognizing Jesus' work on Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter Sunday. And Jesus' words today certainly inform that. At the same time, his words tell us some very important things about what God expects with our lives, especially if we are to follow Jesus. The passage opens with Jesus receiving a report of some Galileans who were likely killed as they worshipped in Jerusalem. And we can't be sure, but there are potentially a couple of reasons why they might be bringing Jesus this report. At this point in Luke's gospel, the trajectory moves toward Jerusalem, where Jesus has actually already told his disciples he will be killed and then raised from the dead. And so the story is moving in, in that direction, so people may recognize this and recognize that Jesus is a Galilean and so might be warning him. Perhaps the thinking that in the wake of this, it may not be a good time to be a Galilean in Jerusalem. On the other hand, another possibility is less sympathetic. It's possible these could be opponents trying to put Jesus in a tough scenario wherein if he condemns the act, he could be accused of opposing the Roman Empire. On the other hand, if he doesn't say anything, people might perceive him as unloyal to his own people, even to his faith. Whatever the case, he kind of goes around both scenarios. And instead, 
whether he's being warned or challenged, he takes the tragedies as an opportunity to teach the audience. He teaches them about these tragedies and how they may instruct their lives. And the way he addresses both tragedies tells us, first, that tragedy does not necessarily translate to judgment. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. There are tragedies that happen that have absolutely nothing to do with the sin of the people involved or the sin of the community affected by it. We can't look at these things and say, well, they had it coming. Sometimes God punishes in this life, and sometimes God rewards in this life. But how God does that is not always apparent to, the, to those of us around the circumstances. And bad things happen to good people. There are no easy answers as to why, but the Bible does not get around this reality either. It doesn't deny this reality. There are large portions of Scripture dedicated to it. The book of Job wrestles with this question very directly. Why bad things happen to good people? Even if we're not tempted to project judgment on those experiencing tragedy, perhaps we might be tempted to blame people for their circumstances. We might tell ourselves that someone's tough circumstances are because of their moral or spiritual mistakes. Perhaps the most prevalent myth that illustrates this is, is the myth of the poor being lazy. Which, of course, if you know any poor people, you likely know that some of the hardest working people in this world are poor. This is not a new myth. We saw Pharaoh accuse Israel of being lazy as an excuse to oppress them all the way back in Exodus. But Jesus' words tell us, first, we can't judge people by their circumstances. And if you take Jesus' words throughout the Gospels, we can't judge people. Period. Of course, he doesn't stop there. And rather than commenting on the tragedies themselves, he takes the opportunities to have people consider themselves. Rather than judging the people in these tragedies or speculating about their sin, better to consider the state of one's own heart. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And he says the same thing about those who died when the tower fell. Rather than speculate about someone's circumstances or about why someone may have met their fate, tragedies such as these serve as sobering reminders of our mortality. And the reality that we will be held accountable before God on the other side of our death. The unrepentant heart, Jesus tells us, faces God's judgment. That's the kind of perishing Jesus is talking about. Facing God's judgment, being separated from God because of our sin. And he illustrates this with a parable about a fig tree. man had a fig tree in his vineyard and it didn't bear fruit for three years, and so he's ready to cut it down. And the gardener 
convinces him to put the tree, put off the tree being cut down. Let him give it special care. We'll give it another year, and if it still doesn't bear fruit, then let it be cut down. It's a vivid illustration of what Jesus has just taught. Now, we have to be careful about over-interpreting parables because, because they are parables, they are illustrations, they don't always have a one-to-one correspondence between their details and our lives and are often taken best as a holistic illustration. They are instructive stories. Taken all together, the tree is an, illustra- an illustration that can be applied to any person. You, it can even be applied communally. But it illustrates a person facing judgment because they're not bearing fruit. And if we're talking about judging others, there's at least one line of interpretation that sees the special treatment that the tree receives as blessing. And so it could be, this may or may not be the case, but it could be that the blessings we do have are there to help us cultivate fruit. And it might be the case that I might not bear fruit otherwise if I didn't have the blessings in my life. Regardless, one of the things the, t- the tree teaches us about God is that God desires repentance. However we view the parable, that much is clear. God desires repentance. It's an illustration of what Jesus has just said. If a tree doesn't bear fruit, it will be cut down. If someone has an unrepentant heart, it will perish. They will face the judgment of God. And this is a hard truth to wrestle with sometimes. But as with all things that God does, love is at the heart of it. God's justice, his judgment is a product of his justice, and his justice is a display of his love for people. He is not indifferent to what happens to people. He is not indifferent about sin. He's not apathetic about things like oppression or the plight of the poor or abuse. He's not indifferent to the things within our lives that might be get, get between him and other people or ourselves and him. Someone not bearing the fruit of repentance will face God's judgment. The instruction of these tragedies is that we don't know when we will be called to account Such is the urgency of Jesus' words. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. That's what the tragedies tell us. We need to repent today. We need to examine our own hearts today rather than speculate about what's in someone else's. The parable also speaks to what that looks like. Repentance bears fruit. John the Baptist talks about this earlier in this gospel. Beginning of the gospel when he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In chapter 3, verse 8. And as people hear this coming from John the Baptist, they ask him what they should do, and he instructs them on selfless and generous living. 
That's what repentance looks like. That's the fruit of repentance. The tree shows us, and John tells us, that repentance is not simply a state of mind. It's active. It's a turning from our sin to God to receive God's mercy. And that reality, that turning, it affects how we live. Turning to God affirms God's commands with one's life. Making Jesus Lord of one's life requires a repentant heart. Lord means following him. Lord means submitting to his will. And as we saw last week, that means trying to follow his example of living a life of sacrificial love as he displayed by dying on the cross for us to be raised from the dead so that we might have the hope of eternal life with him. But the parable also tells us that God is patient. It testifies to the patience of God. The parable speaks to a delay in the tree being cut down, a delay in God's judgment. The cutting down of the tree is delayed, showing us that we who do live, we are alive by the grace of God. But as God allows us to live by his grace, he does so with the hope that we bear the fruit that comes with repentance. And God, in his mercy, calls us to repentance. That's the testimony of Jesus' ministry. That's the testimony of John the Baptist's ministry that prepared people's hearts for Jesus' ministry. But God is merciful. And his mercy is meant to lead us to repentance. He doesn't want anyone to face judgment. He would much rather we repent. 2 Peter 3.9 puts it pretty directly. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And the Apostle Paul states it directly as well as he cautions against judging others in Romans 2.4, saying, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Let me step aside for a second as we recognize that God is patient, it's also important to recognize that God is compassionate. It's really easy to hear these words and start clobbering ourselves over the head and just heaping shame on ourselves, which actually works against the fruit of repentance, if you ask me. Perhaps you're looking at the tree of your life and saying, I don't know that I'm bearing any fruit. Why am I not bearing any fruit? And you might be using it to fuel the shame cycle. Or maybe you're not bearing fruit as you would like it to look. Let me reassure you that God will take you where you are. Repentance begins with turning to God where you are. We don't have to clean up ourselves to come to him. We come to him so that he can help us bear fruit, so that he can clean up our lives, so that he can 
Help us continually repent before him. Jesus gives another illustration of what this looks like. He tells a story elsewhere in the Gospels about a Pharisee and a tax collector, a religious Pharisee and a tax collector going to the temple to pray. Tax collectors seen as cheats in their culture. The epitome of the word sinner. And the Pharisee prays about all the wonderful religious things that he does. Thank you, God, that I'm not like this guy over here. And the tax collector simply prays, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus tells us that that man went home justified before God. That's the prayer that's acceptable to God. The prayer of humility. Coming to God humbly, seeking his mercy. And that is wonderful news. Because at the end of the day, we're all sinners in need of God's mercy and grace. And God's mercy and his justice, they don't leave any room for us to wag our fingers at anyone whether in the wake of tragedy or in the midst of blessing. But rather than let that truth, rather than, than let the truth lead us to pride in whatever fruit we do bear, we should always walk humbly before God. We should consider the state of our hearts Repenting and turning to God and bear fruit in accordance with repentance, following Jesus, asking him to empower us to live lives of sacrificial love, reflecting his. Lent is as good a time as any for self-reflection. As we prepare to recognize Jesus' work on the cross to die for our sins. We recognize our need of saving as sinners. Sinners who need to repent from our sins and turn to God to receive his mercy. As we prepare to celebrate his resurrection, we recognize the gift of eternal life for all who would turn to God in repentance and receive the lordship of his son, Jesus. Maybe you don't know if you've ever done that. Maybe you don't know if you've ever considered the state of your heart before God. Or considered where Jesus is in relation to your life. As I said before, God will take all of us where we are. God's mercy and grace is there to be received if we would come to him. And you can do that. Lord, have mercy on me. Thank you for your forgiveness. Jesus, I receive your lordship. Help me to be like you. And if you do already follow Jesus, if you already affirm him as Lord, that's a good exercise to do regardless, especially in Lent, to continually return to the Lord to examine in prayer before him the parts of our hearts that have strayed 
and to seek him in helping us grow to be more like him. God in his mercy has given us the gift of life as we know it now. Let's offer our lives to him that we may bear fruit for him and know life with him forever. Let's continue worshiping.